Hi, you're listening to the Classroom and Culture Podcast from Epic Media Partners, where we go deep on all things faith, culture, creativity, tech, and innovation as they relate to education and learning. Please see the show notes for additional info and details discussed in today's podcast. Hey, it's Monroe. So as we move into the break season, uh, we want to switch things up just a little and introduce what we're calling the Classroom and Culture Summer Series, where we create some episodes that lean a little more on the culture side of things. Don't worry, there will still be useful info, um, lessons learned, and nuggets that you educators can bring into your school or classroom next year. But we'd like to take this opportunity to branch out and speak with some guests in general that we think you'll find super interesting and insightful. Guests who will foster reflection and maybe inspire you to dream as you go on that walk or lay on the beach. And by the way, we have a simple filter for determining the value of the episodes that we consider just to make sure that you guys have a relevant takeaway. And that filter is... Each episode has to pass the so what test, meaning if you get to the end of a subject or story and can't find a relevant answer to the question, so what, it doesn't make the cut. Super simple. So with that in mind, we want to fire up the Classroom and Culture Summer Series with the first of a multi-part episode. This is a powerful, gripping story um, filled with redemption and vivid examples of God's hand moving through a community and a school, bringing healing and advancing his kingdom. And I just want to give you guys a heads up here. There are some hard things in this episode, but they're pertinent to the story and they only serve to magnify the visibility of God's redemptive hand as our guest talks about the journey and answering God's call. Our guest is Mark Stearns. Now, I've known Mark since I was seven years old, and I think at that point he was 12. And though we've come in and out of each other's lives over the years, I've witnessed many of the details he covers in his story, and I can vouch for them. They are true. I can think of conventional titles I could use um, in introducing Mark to give him assumed credibility, but the truth is he's simply God's servant who continues to answer saying, here I am, Lord, send me. And he does this over and over and over again for God's glory. So I'm choosing my words uh, carefully here because I want to make sure that we see and realize that though Mark is willing, it's God's all-powerful, prevenient, uh, transforming grace that drew Mark and has compelled him to do what he does and be who he is. And what God has done through Mark, he will do through other ordinary flawed humans like us if we show up. Lastly, um, in listening back to this interview, because Mark's uh, such a close friend and mentor and some of these stories hit close to home, uh, I'm a little off my game. But as always, you'll see our host, Mike Zavada's got my back. And hey, I think it makes for a casual, candid conversation. So without further ado, please welcome my friend, brother, and spiritual mentor, Mark Stearns. Monroe, what about the music question? We're not doing the music question? Oh, this is how we kick it off. Uh-huh. We do this with everybody. Is this cool? Mark, Whatever. what's your favorite go-to music when you're driving down from Huntsville to Birmingham? What did you listen to? Or it could be something you grew up in with. In the car. Or, if you, 
I don't, listen to music. What did you listen to? So I didn't listen to anything coming down here, but when I'm painting this house <laughs> um, by myself, um, I'll listen to, well, I like Led Zeppelin. Yes. Um, Come I like, on. I like um, James Taylor. I like uh, Carol King. Um, I like Motown, The Beatles. I love Three Dog Night. Um, Out in the country, man. It's yeah, one of my favorite teams Eagles. Ever. I like Chicago. Um, I love um, um, Santana. Um, <laughs> I, this sounds like I one of my playlists. I went to a playlists. Santana concert uh, 1996. Well, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, so I listen to that while I'm painting. So I don't know what the neighborhood thinks about it. So those are the, that's the music I listen to. But see, man, here's the thing that's so cool for me. Mm-hmm. When I worked for you, painting in college, yeah. that's what we did, man. Oh, yeah. We had that music on. Yeah, well, it, I got this speaker and tied it into my phone. I didn't know you could draw this stuff, so it's kind of blaring for me. And that's I awesome. And I cannot believe how it takes me <laughs> back. Uh, that's awesome. I love mm-hmm. it. Okay, so just to set the background, Mark, let's talk about your home life, like sure. your mom and dad. Like, start there and how you came out of all that. Sure. Well, um, I was born in South Alabama. Um, my mom and dad, I had a brother and sister, and um, went to a really good school. Um, my dad had a really good job, and he did well, and so we lived in a pretty good section of this uh, of a city down south. And um, I went to, a, you know, like I said, I went to a good school. And so, on the outside of our family, if you were looking from the outside, you would have thought that we were a good family. That, you know, we were making it and a solid family. And and I guess that's that was the perception, I guess. But inside my house. Um, well, it was a nightmare um, for me for a lot for a lot of years, and for my brother, and for my sister, um, and for my mom. And so, um, both my parents were alcoholics, and they struggled with that for all my life, you know, until you know, all my life. And so, you have people when they drink, they can laugh and they can listen to music and have fun, and then. You have people when they drink, um, they cry, and they tell you about life and what life's done. And then you have people when they drink, um, they become violent. And so that was both my parents. And so a night for me, and I, probably when I was five years old, and my, when I started taking it in and realized what was going on around me, my dad would get home from work, my stomach would start hurting. My stomach always hurt. My nerves were shot at five and six and seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I was shot. And so my dad would get home, they would start drinking. I remember my teeth hurt um, because of the fear, because I knew what was happening, about to happen. They would start to drink and somebody would say something. And my dad was bigger. And so, you know, um, he would kick her legs out from under her, or he'd get on top of her, and he would start beating her in front of us. And, you know, when you see this as a child, it's like your mind, you, your mind scrambles. It just scrambles. You're in shock. Um, you're screaming, you're crying, and this is your dad, this is your mom. And, you know, when you're screaming, get off, get off, you know, everybody's screaming. And then he would whip around and tell you to get your 
in your room. And if you didn't, then you, then that he would come at you. And so you just knew you would go into your room. And so you go, I would go into my room, and you hear your mom screaming, you hear things breaking, and you think, you know, that she's dying, and you don't know what to do. And so my dad would say this. Um, I would be standing beside him, and he would look at my mom and say, if you ever try and leave me, and he would say it to her. It's not going to go well. And I believed him. I believed that one day my mom's life would end. And so when you hear those words, it becomes a part of you. And you take it everywhere you go. You take it to the playground. You take it to school. You take it when you spend the night out. It never leaves you. And it it causes you never feel safe. Um, it begins to mold your mind. You become a little survivor at that age, at five and six and all the way up. You, you become, I mean, this is the person that would say, I love you, I love you, Mark, I love you. And then he would do this. And so all of a sudden, love meant something very different to me. And when you see that contradiction of, this person who says he loves you and then he does that to your mom, you don't know what to think. You start, you know. And so that went on for a lot of years. And uh, my dad was extremely unfaithful to my mom. I mean, when you see your dad kiss another woman in front of you. And I was so little. I remember I had my, I was sitting in the back seat and I was just leaning over and I saw him do this. And again, you kind of go into... (laughs) you lose your breath. Like, what is that? And so um, I learned not to trust. I, so I started realizing that. You kind of realize that. Um, you go into your own world. And you don't... And the other things, the way it affects you is you... It affects you in every way. Every relationship, it began to affect me. And in school, I did horrible. I mean, I didn't do well in school because you're never at school. You're there physically, but you're never there mentally. And so that went on um, for a long time. And so we finally, um, and during this time, he's starting to abuse my sister. And so really, you're just held captive. You're just too small to do anything about it. And we ended up moving to Montgomery, and um, my dad worked there in a company. And I guess they thought they were going to have a second chance, which was a a joke. and it didn't work out. And finally, my mom, my mom always had a pistol, always. A drink in one hand, a cigarette in one. She had that pistol sitting next to her. And I always thought, you know, that one would get the other. You know, at a certain age, you think somebody's going to do one. <laughs> and so um, my mom asked my dad to meet her at a particular motel. And it's funny, when I go to Florida and I get off 65 and I go down 331 or 231, I can look to the left and I see that motel. And I always think, what the crud? Why don't they tear that place down? Well, my mom asked my dad to meet her there. And so she had planned on she had planned on either leaving or taking care of something. And she, she told me this and I believed her. She sat down at the table and said, I'm not gonna, I can't live like this anymore, and I don't want the kids living like this anymore. And so he said, well, you know, I told you. And she pulled that pistol and stuck it up between his legs, and she said, you're a dead man looking at me. So either let me go 
or I'll put you under. She said, I'll kill you in your sleep. And he believed her. He should have believed her. She had tapped out. Um, and he left us. And when he left us, we became the single parent with no education on the road. And so we left and we moved back down to South Alabama. Um, we lived in a, in a project for a bit. That was hard. Um, we became the transit families, what we did. So healthy, you, after a while, you don't know what healthy is. That's how, that's what it does. You don't even know what healthy looks like anymore. And so she couldn't find work there. Then we moved to Florida. She tried to find work there and uh, she couldn't find any. And so we had to move to my grandma's. And so now there are huge gaps in my life, huge gaps in school. I mean, I didn't learn my fractions. I didn't learn, I mean, fractions to me, are you teasing me? Are you joking? You want me to learn fractions? And I go home to this stuff, really? Sentence structure? I didn't know what a verb was. I didn't know what a noun was. And my biggest fear, so I can tell how it happens to children a lot. I felt dumb. I knew I was dumb. And I felt dirty. I felt dirty because when my dad would stick his face in my face with that bourbon breath and he would talk to me about sexual stuff. I didn't know what he meant by it, but I knew it was nasty. And that becomes a part of you. I felt nasty and dirty and stupid. And so I learned to sit in the back of the class, always. Never get called up to that board because then you get found out. And so at that age, can you imagine? At those young developmental years, I was learning to hide already. I was already being defined by my environment, by them. It was like my life was a pen in their hand and they were writing my life out and there was nothing I could do about it. And so I was very confused and I can tell you what confusion turns into. Anger. And so um, while my mom was down in South in Florida, she met a guy, and I was at my grandma's, and this is during school, I'm not going to school, and he said, have you ever run a motel before? And she said, yeah, I've run a lot, which she's never run one, and survivors, they lie. They do what they gotta do to take care of the kids. And so he said, I've got uh, a motel in Mississippi, do you wanna go run it? And she said, yes, I'll run it. So we moved to Mississippi, and we got into the motel business, which is not, it's not a good place for a kid. I can tell you that, lots of strangers lots of action. And so I was seeing a lot of things and I was growing up fast. I knew a lot of stuff when I was 10 and 11 and 12, things I should have never known about. And again, it molds you. And so, but my mom was a hard worker. I can tell you that. Can I slow you down for one second? So your mom, and I've heard this story before, but your mom also sounds like she had crazy street smarts, think fast on your feet. Absolutely. Kind of capability. Absolutely. My mom was smart. And I can tell you this, she was a, aggressive. And she believed in herself. And um, she, and I think that's the way my mom expressed her love towards us. I know it is. I mean, she would say she loved me. And she would hug me. She was that way. But the way I think that her in her own dysfunctional way was to work hard and to provide the best she could. And so, you know, she did. Yeah. So um, so we got into the motel business. She was so successful because she could cook. If you're from South Alabama, 
crab cakes, gumbo, all that stuff. That's she right. got this restaurant going really well in front of the motel. And so, you know, we're living it, that life. And so he said, I got three motels in Huntsville. Do you want to move there? And, and so around 11, we moved to Huntsville, and we moved into a motel there. And I moved into room 44 by myself. And my sister lived in a room, and my brother lived in a room, and my mom lived in a room. And I don't know how we got this motel. I don't know what happened, but it became ours. And so I remember there was a switchboard, and I started. I learned how to work the switchboard. At 12 years old, I was checking people in, and, you know, my mom would be behind the desk, and if somebody needed a room, she'd point at me and snap her finger, and she goes, my man will, my man will check in. And that's what I hear a lot of times, too. You see a lot of times where children become caretakers. Parents. I wasn't a man. I was a little boy. I was a little boy that had seen a lot, and I grew up too fast. And I was, you know, that that verse that says that the thief comes to steal. He had my life, my childhood was stolen, uh, and so was my sisters and my brothers. And he didn't stop there because it continued on. So I'm twelve. I am hyper. I have a lot of energy, and I'm very angry, and I'm very confused, and that's a bad mix. You know, that's when I met you, um, and and I, I think the first time I ever met you, you may not remember this, but we had a mutual friend uh, named Mark Tatum, and Mark was our neighbor. And I think I, the first time I ever met you, I think I was seven, which makes sense. You would have mm-hmm. been 12. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, I could see some of those things in you then, I think. Um, I remember just, I was like, because you were older and, you know, my brother and all these different people, I thought everybody older than me was cool. So I'm like, this guy's kind of cool. But I was like, something tells me I need to kind of like keep my distance, um, yeah. you know. But so I, th- I think a lot of those things, um, whether it was anger or whatever, you know, you could kind of sense that even then. Well, I think anybody who's in that situation, you know, you do, you're you're so angry and you're edgy. You're always edgy. And I would say That's it. survivors That's always are on edge and they never... And so by the time I was 12, I didn't trust anybody. I didn't trust, survivors don't trust anybody. Yeah. They don't tr- I didn't trust my mom. I didn't trust anybody. I didn't trust adults. I didn't respect adults. I'd seen them. I saw my mom. I saw my dad. And so for me, at that age, I was on my own. And that's what survivors think. They trust one person, and that's themselves. They only trust themselves. And so I don't depend on anybody. And so... I was that kid that was real hyper, and my brother came in one night, and he said, we need to take you out and get you drunk. And I was so primed for it because I felt so bad about myself. I felt so bad about what I was living in and who I was and still struggling in school. I remember I went out and drank three beers with him, and I loved it because it numbed me. Yeah. I mean, it made me think, not think, for a minute about who I was, who I was and who I was becoming. And then, so I started calling this cafe across the street and said, this is this motel. I need a six-pack of Country Club Small Boys delivered to the desk. I'll deliver it to the room. And so I started drinking a six-pack every night. And then my brother introduced me to, you know, sniffing gasoline. So I became a hacker. So I'm sniffing gasoline and toiling and paint thinner and oil-based paint and drinking. And, I mean... And I saw stuff at the motel. I mean, I saw prostitutes. I mean, a few times they would call me to their room. I mean, I'm just a boy. Um, But this became my life. I mean, this was who I was now. And I was just 
12. That's a sad normal, right? It is a normal, but you don't know what to pick out. I yeah. mean, you don't know what, what do you shoot for? I mean, how do you aim high? I mean, you don't even want to aim before anymore. What you're used to doing is living day to day. And it wasn't like I thought those things were bad. Oh, no, no, no. I thought, this is great, you know? And so, um, seventh grade was hard, eighth grade was hard. I got a little violent with um, one of my teachers. I got kicked out of that class, and I remember I met with the principal, and they said, you can't, we're kicking you out, of, we're taking you out of your history class, and you're going to have to go to summer school. And I remember I smiled at them, because I didn't respect teachers. I didn't respect authority. I'm just telling you, I, and I wasn't afraid of, of any adult. And I smiled at him and I said, I can tell you what you can do with summer school. I said, summer's for playing. And I said, and that's what I'm gonna do. And so what they do with kids like me is they give you a D and they get your butt out of there. And they send you on to the high school. But I can tell you what, teachers tell teachers. So they know you're coming. You got a family heading your way. And so they treat you accordingly to that. And I understand that. You should respect what walks in those halls. You have to be careful, you know? And so by the time I hit high school, though, I was doing LSD and downers and speed and smoking dope and uh, not going to school hardly at all. I mean, there were railroad tracks down behind, behind our school, and I would walk down to a mall or a strip mall, and I played, started playing pool, and I loved playing pool. So really, I stopped going to school a lot and started stealing. If I needed clothes, I stole them. I mean, that's the way I thought. I go, I can remember some person made fun of my bell bottoms because they were too short. And I remember that's the last time that's happening. So I went to a store and I remember I stole seven pair of pants and seven shirts. And I remember thinking if somebody, it would have been bad if somebody caught me because I know what I would have done. If you push people and you press them and they're surviving, you, you be careful how you handle them. Um, because they don't care anymore. And people who have no hope and don't care are the most dangerous people they'll deal with because they don't fear anymore and they don't care. And that's who I was becoming. So that's who I was. And so ninth grade, 10th grade, you know, I'm not going to school and um, I just keep doing drugs and keep Let me ask you this. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, I'm, I'm going to be an interrupter because, man, this is, I got to get in on it. But how would a kid your age find all that stuff? Like, how did you cultivate or have or know the relationships to go, hey, I can go over here and score some acid or I can, I mean. Because it was, it's all, I mean, it's around you. I mean. <laughs> it's just uncanny how you, you goes, see, yeah. No, 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 dark, if you hang in, a, if you're around a dark world. Um, and it comes were, to you. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're around it, yeah. you know, and so I was around it all the time. And so um, it was easy. To wow. get to that. So what eventually happened to me, and it's a painful way, but you know, most for me, most a lot of people who come to faith really is a is a is a road of is a journey of a lot of pain. And so, if you if you sniff gasoline and do acid at the same time, you're going to damage your brain. And I remember that old commercial that with the egg. It says this is. This is your brain. They would, they would scramble the egg in the pan, and I would look at that, and I'd go, true that. Because I started, I would hallucinate when I shouldn't hallucinate. 
when I wasn't doing acid, I would see patterns on the wall or colors and on the wall. I'd see traces, which means if I waved my hand in front of me, I would see 10 traces of my hand behind me. And I knew I was burning my brain out, but I wasn't going to stop because that meant I would reality. This is who you are. So I didn't stop. And so one night I was walking in the pool hall, about five hits of acid and I had a pint of vodka in my pocket. And, you know, you want to get to where you're going as quick as you can. So I took all five hits and I drank that pint. Remember, I was still a kid and it hit me like a, a freight train and I went up and I never came down. I had crossed the line and I knew it. And so my sister eventually walked out in a four-lane highway and ended her life. And I wasn't going to live like that either. Um, I was laying in bed, sweating at night, watching things crawl on the wall, and I knew life was over. But then, the great thing was this. I had a friend that I used to spend time with, but when he had met Christ, and when he did, we parted ways. And I didn't know anything about Christ or God. I had no faith background, you know. And somebody met the Lord, and I, it, it meant nothing to me. But what happened was, he made a call to some parents, and um, he told on me. I had helped them get some dope or something. I wasn't a drug dealer. I wouldn't mind being one. I didn't care, but it wasn't that big a deal. But I found out he did, and so he was in a lot of trouble. And I grabbed a couple of guys from the pool hall, and I said, do you want to go get this guy? And they said, yeah. And these were thumpers. These boys loved to thump. And so we found out where he was, and we drove to over the mountain. And um, when we got there, um, he was sitting on the front porch with somebody. And I remember getting out of the car, and um, we circled him. And I told him what was about to happen. Okay, I know, cheap shot, but that's where we're calling it for this episode. Um, there's a lot more to this story, so you'll want to make sure you check out the next episode. Uh, don't worry, we'll pick up right where we left off. Hey, don't forget about the Epic Friday Five. It's a short email list of things that we find interesting and or relevant during the week that we just want to share with you guys. Um, it's just our take on some good stuff that you guys can carry into the weekend. So to do that, just go to epic2.com, select contact, and subscribe. That's it. Also, we are working on our Q&A episode that we want to build around your questions. So if you'd like to hear Mike Zavada address and discuss topics that you are interested in, we'd love to hear from you guys. To submit, just call 833-GO-EPIC-2 and state your question there. And lastly, don't forget, Epic has everything your school or organization needs to be your complete remote learning solution. To request a demo and discuss how we can partner with you, please contact anyone from our school engagement team at epic2.com. That's epic2.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. If 
you thought today's episode was enlightening, please pass the word. The Classroom and Culture Show can be heard on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to become a regular listener and receive additional info, please subscribe on your favorite platform today. That's Classroom and Culture from Epic Media Partners. Thanks. Thanks.